looking at this passage, <clears throat> we could start by saying that life is tenuous. Things change in an instant. I'm sure many of us have different life situations or scenarios, maybe perhaps not in our own singular experience, but with those that we're closely associated with or family members, where we could go to that feeling and that sense of life being able to change in an instant, dramatically so. So as we look at the text this morning, once again, I want to start with the thought that each of us understand as human beings in a fallen age, life is tenuous. Things change in an instant, and people, as a result, perish. It's significant as well, as we look at the text this morning, that we stay with the word perish. That's significant to the text. It's not the same word for die. We're not talking about everybody dies, is what Jesus is describing here. That's true, and that's obvious. Everyone dies, but not everyone perishes. And that's a critical distinction in the passage when we look at how tenuous life is, how it's fleeting by, that existence is momentary, and that the result is eternal. Again, Perishing is far more horrible than dying. Your mind goes to John 3.16, right? Believing on the only Son of God, the only begotten Son of God, that whosoever does believe upon Him will not what? It's not will not die. It's will not perish, but will have everlasting life. Do you see, perish is is dealing with eternity. The opposite of perish is life in abundance. Not life in this age, but life forever. So the contrast between perishing is life everlasting. The contrast of life everlasting is eternally perishing. Given the reality of how life is constantly on the move, and, and... and, and we hear about it um, oftentimes. I, I find myself already saying it. I'm 36 years old, um, and I already know that life is just on the fast track. Um, again, depending on where you're at in the age spectrum, I am a babe or I am your elder or wherever. It, it, it doesn't matter where you're at in the spectrum. Each individual will be able to recognize at a moment of introspection, life is fast. It's constantly moving, and there is, if, if we're honest with ourselves, and we don't numb ourselves to such reality, but we're honest, we recognize there is no guarantee of tomorrow either. There isn't, even though everything within us says there is. There is no guarantee of a tomorrow. Thus, in our passage this morning, Jesus stresses to you the need for you to repent of sin and to rest upon him, receiving him as your Savior. That's the impression of the passage, is that life is on the move. No one is guaranteed tomorrow. Therefore, make the necessary adjustments. 
Before we get started in the text, staying with the word um, perishing and then thinking of repentance, it implies two things. The implication to the thought of a call for repentance, I want to hold this out to you if you consider yourself at this moment perhaps unrepentant, unsure of the status of your repentance or your faith. Where exactly does it rest and whom does it receive? The call for universal repentance, as we see here in the passage, implies two things. Number one, it implies that no one at any given point in time can ever say, quote, I am innocent. I should not be going through this, end quote. The universal call to repentance without distinction eliminates any one individual ever being able to claim that they themselves are innocent in a particular matter, and therefore should not suffer. Number two, the implication of universal repentance, a call without distinction for all men everywhere to repent, implies in so doing, you will be forgiven. In so doing, don't let anything stop you from repenting. Don't doubt that repentance is the means to forgiveness. The call to universal repentance in order to get out of suffering or perishing, is the term, implies there will be sufficient grace there in your time of need to wash you of your guilt and impute righteousness to your account, whereby you might be forgiven. That's the implication of a call to repent. One more step before we just jump into the text. What is repentance? Sometimes we go on and on about a word like that, and we think, okay, great, it sounds critically important, and it sounds like it's universally applicable. It sounds like if I do so, I might receive of promises that await me. But what exactly is the act of repenting? We define biblical repentance this way, turning from sin unto God, with full purpose of and endeavor after a life of new obedience. Once again, we define repentance. How do I know if I've repented? How do I know if I am repentant? Do I live a life of repentance? Have I turned from my sin and unto God with a full purpose and an endeavor after a life, a whole life to be lived of new obedience unto God? If so, the implication is, you're forgiven. You've been cleansed and you've been washed. The call for repentance for the next few moments is the central concern of the text, but there are a few questions we need to deal with with the text. But the central purpose this morning for the next few minutes is this issue of a call upon all without distinctions, all men everywhere, men, women, children alike, all individuals, to repent is a central concern of this text. Notice how repentance is now introduced, and let's just jump right into the text. Notice with me in Luke 13 there, in verse 1 and 2, how this issue of repentance is introduced to you and to myself this morning. Verse 1, there were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans? 
Now, again, he says, do you think that's the case, that that the ones who were slaughtered, who were murdered, were worse than the other ones? And do you think that because they suffered in this way? Now, again, think about what's taking place here. We really don't have a lot of information about the Galilean event. This is not a lot of information that we're dealing with, with what exactly took place that day on this experience that they're coming to Jesus and telling him. However, if we could give you the most likely of situations that took place in verse 1 about the issue of Pilate mingling their blood with their sacrifices, the picture would be something along these lines. This is what gives most sense to the picture. There were a group of Galileans who were offering sacrifices to God in Jerusalem. Most likely, this situation took place at Passover. This is a time for offerings. This is a time for sacrifice. Most likely, historically then, as they come to tell Jesus about the event that just happened, there is some proximity to Passover. There is a group of Galileans here offering sacrifices. So in your mind, you can picture men who are coming forward, bringing their sacrifices to Jerusalem during an accepted time to offer said sacrifices, and Pilate kills them. Now, what's going on with Pilate and what role does he have in the slaying of the Galileans here in verse 1 and verse 2? You recall as we're moving towards the climactic moments at the cross and the interrogation that Pilate has with Jesus, you know of Pilate. Pilate at this point is a Roman ruler over Judea, right? A proxy ruler who oversees and keeps everybody under control for Rome. Somehow, at this point in the text, there was a collision, clearly, between the Galileans offering sacrifice and Pilate. Now, again, it's probably not Pilate, per se, individually Pilate. It could have. I don't know that it wasn't, but it's more likely that someone on behalf of Pilate carried out the actual execution of the Galileans. Why, though? Again, perhaps, given the meaning that Pilate is ruling over Judea at the time, perhaps there's something there that Pilate saw as a political threat. I don't know why them sacrificing would have been something political to him. Maybe it was simply an unauthorized independence, and Pilate wouldn't have any of it. Again, you don't rule yourselves. You do what I say when I say it. Maybe there was words exchanged. We don't know exactly what took place, but clearly there was, in this picture that's being painted, an otherwise unjust and brutal murder. That's what's going on here. So again, again, why and who said what to who first and how did it escalate? All we know is at this point there are men here, Galileans, sincerely seeking to worship and offer sacrifice. You can imagine, kind of go in your mind where they're here and they're, they're offering sacrifice. Men come up, things occur, they are killed, and they fall on the sacrificial table. This is the picture of the blood being mingled with their sacrifices. There's some connection. You can now picture blood on the sacrificial system, dead people laying on it too. And it was unjust. It was unprovoked. It was unreasonable. Now, in keeping with the context of the passage that we've been working at for quite some time, we know who's bringing the word to Jesus about the unjust murder of the Galileans. It's the Pharisees. He's been talking with them for a season of time now through Luke 12, and he continues here into Luke 13. He's dealing with the Pharisees. They're the ones who are coming, and they're suggesting to him 
There was an unjust event over here, an unjust murder. What say you about these events? Now, again, why the Pharisees then bring it to him, it's not exactly known here in the passage. This is what their angle was. This is exactly what they wanted to do. This is how they wanted to trip him up. Don't know exactly. Nonetheless, they come and report to him an unjust event and want him to speak on it. But notice what Jesus does in the explanation of the unjust murdering of the Galileans, an absolutely brutal killing by Pilate. Jesus unites the murder of the Galileans to what he's been trying to explain to the Pharisees about the weather and about litigation so as to once again point them out. You see, this is your problem, guys. This is it. You see events in time and you fail to rightly discern their significance for eternity. You're heavy on the momentary. You get a lot of things. You're otherwise intelligent individuals. But you fail to see the most significant piece of all, and that is life eternal. You just miss it. Again, look back up in the text. that He, he joins this, this murdering situation with Pilate right back to the same situation he's been dealing with. Look up in the text of chapter 12, verse 56. We already dealt with this, but this is a continuation of the same conversation for Jesus. Now, it might not be for the Pharisees who bring it. They think this is a radically new thing to discuss. But Jesus is saying, no, this is consistently how men and women think, and it's wrong. You're missing the point. Verse 56, you hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky. Yes, you're all meteorologists. You get it. You know where the sun is, where the moon is. You know where the scorching heat is going to come. You know when the floodwaters are about to bust loose. You get that. But why do you not know how to interpret the present time, the significance of who I am, the significance of what I've been saying to you? You get so much on a basic human level. But naturally, as men and women, you miss the significance and the ultimate meaning to it all. Look at it again. Jump down to verse 57. He says, and, and why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? Speaking here of litigation with their neighbor. As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make every effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and then the judge cast you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. You see things quickly escalate in litigation matters. You see it. My neighbor's got me on this. If I keep fighting it, it's going to just get worse for me, quite possibly. So what do you do? You make the right accommodations. You make the right adjustments. Let me settle with you before we go in there. You know, maybe it's like, you know, a, a sense of uh, kids in an argument or in a fight. One is getting ready to appeal to the magistrate in the house. And the other kid on the porch is like, oh, they come to their senses finally because they're about to go inside and tell somebody of authority. So they're like, you know what? Let's just make it right right now. Uh, you know, and kids, slap me. Slap me because I slap you. Slap me. And then we're even. Or you try to, you, you, you recognize things are going to escalate in a negative way for me. 
So, so I'm looking to settle it with you right now. H- how can we make it right before you take me to the officer and the officer put me in prison? They're trying to figure out how to work this. And he's saying, right, you get the idea of things moving along in time, but you miss their ultimate significance of the life hereafter. You miss the significance of these events ultimately. Verse 59, I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. Now, again, in other words, it's this way. If you see the scorching heat, which was described in verse 54 and 55, you see the scorching heat and you make the necessary adjustments. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Each of us understand this. You get in a dispute with your neighbor, your brother, your sister, and you make the necessary adjustments. But when it comes to grasping the ultimate outcome of your life, of your momentary existence, you completely fail to discern it. Therefore, you fail to make the necessary adjustments, which is repentance. Again, it's hard as human beings to understand the eternal. It's hard. It's hard to wrap our mind around it. It's hard to have a correct understanding that draws in hope in certain ways. We have so many loud voices in the moment that that kind of block us from seeing that future eschatological glory. And therefore, we put too much weight on the momentary and almost make it feel to ourselves like this is eternal. Life's always going to be like this. Things aren't really going to change. And we might not say that, but Jesus is saying, but that's how you invest. That's how you act, even if you don't say it. You're not making the necessary adjustments for the life to come. You're living as though this right here is the life to come. Consider two arguments for the next couple of moments that I want to address that every single person seems to make, no matter the time period, and the argument the Pharisees here are making toward Jesus about tragedy. There are two primary arguments. Again, no matter where we're at in history, people tend, natural people, tend to make these two arguments when it comes to dealing and making sense of tragedy. Look at the passage one more time, and then we'll deal with these two arguments and hopefully be drawn right again to the center of the passage as a call to repentance. Look at verse 1. There were some present at that very time. Again, the Pharisees. What Present at what time? The time of the discussion that Jesus is having with them since verse 54 and so forth. So there were some who were there hearing everything that he was saying. They then speak up and they told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. He killed them and they fell on the altar. They were there and it was unjust. And he answered them when they propositioned him with this situation. Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? Jesus gives an emphatic response. No. I'm telling you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Again, not die. 
We're not dealing with like death and time. We're talking about eternal perishing. Verse 4, or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? You know, just, you know how carpenters are. They're the worst of the worst, you know. Oh, is that what you think? It's just, it's the carpenters. Well, we all know that the hollows have fallen them because, you know, there's a lot of things we could list about them. You think, is that how you think of them? That they're just worse offenders than everybody else who lived in Jerusalem, more, more dignified? Verse 5, no. No, not at all. I, I'm telling you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Again, I mentioned in this concept of tragedy and difficulty, we have what seems to be at face value very clearly. If we were to pass just simple common judgment along the lines of equity, we would say these are innocent people. And it is fair to say innocent in that common equitable judgment. They, they didn't do something to provoke Pilate to kill them and put them on the altar. So in that sense, we're saying this is, these are innocent people um, who were murdered. We're looking at the fall of a wall that is being built, a large edifice wall, and it fell and crushed 18 people who were working on it. In common judgment, we would say they are innocent. And we grieve with them and their families that lost these individuals who died by virtue of a, what we could fairly call a tragedy. Unfortunately, there are two arguments that are typically put forward that miss this passage completely when we deal with tragedy like these two events and others of our own time. Number one, the first argument that altogether misses the point of tragedy and difficulty in this age is the promotion of self-righteousness in tragedy. An argument that distorts this biblical picture of innocence and injustice and altogether misses the point of tragedy is the response from men and women of the promotion of self-righteousness in the wake of tragedy. Again, that is most likely what the Pharisees are doing here in their picture as they come to him. Hey, you know, you know what happened about those Galileans who died by Pilate mingling their blood with their own sacrifices. Again, we don't know without Jesus' response, we wouldn't know exactly why they're saying it or how they're bringing it up. But then he tells us, the Lord tells us through the text why they're bringing it up for the promotion of self-righteousness. Do you think you're better? The implication being, yeah, we do. And he's saying no. But again, whether it's the Pharisees or it's many in our own time, there is some sense of an accepted view in tragedies from many people that whenever a calamity visits a person or peoples, this is proof that they are exceptionally wicked and therefore God is directly punishing them. There is this this impulse for self-righteousness to rise in the wake of tragedy. And it's here with the Pharisees. They probably deserved it. Because God judged them, even in an act of piety. 
So he turns and he knows that's the tone and says, do you think you're better? And the implication inside, once again, is kind of. But this is not, again, something isolated to the first century. We have likewise heard, quote-unquote, leaders get on media outlets and say similarly stupid things, whether it be something with Katrina, maybe you recall, or 9-11, people assigning things like, this is God's judgment directly on homosexuality, public schools, the presence of the ACLU. I don't know if you recall, but those statements were explicitly made by people who are otherwise Christian leaders who take what is indeed a tragic event and try to assign it to someone else's guilt in order to promote what? What's the point in saying something like that? Self-righteousness. It didn't happen to me. You know, it happened to them. And if I got caught up in any of it, it wouldn't be because of me. It'd be because I'm too close in proximity to them. Calvin writes, quote, this is almost natural to us all. To be too rigorous and severe in judging others and too much disposed to flatter our own faults. The consequences that we not only censure with excessive severity the offenses of others. Isn't everybody ready to do that? Oh, I'll tell you why Katrina happened. It happened because of him, 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 her, this whole structure, this idea. I'll tell you another thing about the, you know. The consequences that we not only censure with excessive severity the offenses of others, but whenever they meet with any form of calamity whatsoever, we condemn them as wicked and reprobate-deserving persons. This is the promotion of self-righteousness, but self-righteousness massively misses the point of such tragic events. Notice what Jesus says very carefully. Look with me in verse 3, 2 and 3, very carefully, and then we'll move on to the second and last of our arguments. But notice how, uh, the nuance of what Jesus is saying here. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? Do you think they're worse? He says, no, I tell you, unless you repent, you will, and the key word there is likewise, perish. You see, in other words, what he's saying is they are no more sinful than you. They're no more sinful than you. Rather, as you come to me in your self-righteous attitude, he says, you are just as sinful as they are. In other words, everybody before God ultimately is unrighteous and sinful in need of repentance. Do you think they're more than you? No, 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 no. You're just like them. What is the implication? You should be ready to die just as tragically as they did. You should be surprised that Pilate didn't catch you and slaughter you. You should be surprised that the wall didn't collapse when you were walking by it. 
not glory over your neighbor because of some sense of self-righteousness. Unless you repent from where you are, you're in the same condition as everybody else. Self-righteousness massively misses the point of such tragedy. The second argument that I want to deal with just for a moment from this passage of how we distort and altogether miss the point and the meaning of tragedy as we look upon it is the argument of denying secondary causes. The denial of secondary causes. What do I mean by secondary causes? This is important for us to grasp for a moment. That God uses ordinary means in the accomplishment of His will. That God uses ordinary means in the accomplishment of His will. Why do people seek to deny that God uses secondary means or ordinary means in the accomplishment of His will? It's because it's one step in being able to deny the existence of a sovereign God altogether, or it's an ability to say, if He is sovereign and does rule, He is brutal and cruel. For instance, you notice Jesus spoke earlier in the passage as we drew our attention to verse 34. Let me just draw you there once again to the idea of God uses ordinary means or secondary causes in the accomplishment of his decrees. Look at verse 54. He also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming. Notice what Jesus says. And so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, it's going to be hot out today. And guess what? It happens. In other words, weather patterns do exist and are set in motion. Like a hurricane, like Katrina, we take for instance where there was a lot of conversation about who was guilty and culpable in drawing Katrina to the shoreline. We could say, you know what, actually there are secondary causes in the world set about by God's control. There is something called atmospheric pressure. And that I am not a meteorologist, but there is something, right, where like hot and cold do somehow collide in an atmospheric pressure, and then there's some sort of barometer that something drops, things get intense, and there's a vortex that begins spinning. Is that true? Is that real? Does it actually happen? I think we'd all say, yes, okay, wait, maybe it's not the ACLU who caused it. There is secondary elements at work. There is parts and principles in the world, secondary causes that are genuine and true and real. And therefore, there is such thing as tragedy. Another element would be human wickedness. There are real murderers. Some very unhelpfully think they're promoting God's sovereignty and speak simply of God slaying people. That would be wrong assignment. There are secondary causes that are genuine, true, and real. There are bad guys. 
people that are intent on harming an evil want to kill and slay otherwise, again, not morally, but simply commonly innocent. We cannot deny secondary causes. One last secondary cause of effect in the text, the law of gravity. Right? It's, it's not that God just like actually pushed the wall over and crushed the 18 people below. There is something like, uh-oh, if you don't put those blocks on top of each other correctly and you don't like do some sort of plumb line, we could all end up dying from it. No, 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 that's not true. It is. It is. There's gravitational pull that will pull this thing down. Or there's wind that does blow, and it will push the wall over and kill 18 otherwise known as innocent individuals. The law of gravity is real. It would be incorrect for us to simply say, God keeps your feet on the ground. Well, yes. And there's secondary causation to that. It's called the law of gravity that is set in motion. Gravity is real. This is important for us to grasp. Again, why? Because people seek to deny that secondary causes are at work in order they might prove that if there is a Christian God, such tragedy, like the wall that fell in Siloam, reveals that He is neither just nor loving, therefore not worthy of our worship. If we can prove, okay, the Christians say He's sovereign... Explain this event to me. There are no such things. No, you can't have it both ways. You can't have a sovereign God and have secondary causes. No, you can't. You can't be that nuanced. You can't speak that way so clearly. Either he is an evil, controlling being and unjust in all the executions that we see, or he doesn't exist at all. To be sure, God's sovereignty and providential control is never removed from secondary causes. I don't want to paint the wrong picture. There aren't two parallel powers running in the universe. God's sovereignty and providential control is never removed from his secondary causes. Yet, and I know you're going to think, I don't know, you sound inconsistent. Secondary causes are real, and they are culpable in tragedy. Pilate really did murder those people. His judgment awaits him. He is wholly culpable. The gravity and the poor plumb line establishing the wall of Siloam is culpable in the tragedy of the 18 individuals dying. We must be careful, and let me conclude with these few thoughts. Life as you know it is mysterious. We cannot cram two numbers into a theological calculator and wait for it to provide us the correct answer. I want to stress, tragedy, whether it's the godly, pious people who died by murder at the hands of Pilate's cohort that day in Jerusalem, or the 18 workers who we otherwise don't know deserved, as far as humanly speaking, commonly speaking, the wall to collapse and kill them. Or if we think of many other scenarios, why did that boy have to be brought into that home that does that kind of thing to him regularly? Why, why did that woman have to be in that alley walking at that point in time at that night? We'll never get away 
from an element of mystery and tragedy in this age. There is no theological calculator. No matter how badly we may want one, there is no perfect answer. There will always remain a mystery, and the question of why will always linger. Why did those guys get slain that day in Jerusalem? Why were those guys there when the wall fell? Why didn't it just fall at night when no one was working? There will always remain that sense. You can now take that and plug in a ton of situations. Think of cancer even. Why did this person get this at this point in time? Why did this financial outcome befall this person and cause them to get wrapped up? Why did this, why, why? There'll always be that question as to, ah, no matter how much I work at this, there is still the question of why. But let me press one last thought. Is answering the question of why and settling the nature of justice in the earth the point of such events? Is that why it happens? So that we as people of God can unwind all of them, settle them in time, and rightly distinguish between who received good equity and who was unjustly slain? Is that the burden that lays on our shoulders as the people of God? Is that what this text is saying? Yes, let's talk about who was at the altar and let's assign justice or let's take it away. Who was at, who were one of those 18 carpenters? Let's look into their background and find out why they should have, should not have been at that wall that day. We'll, we'll, we'll find culpability somewhere. We'll parse all this out. We'll split all the hairs and we'll finally have a sense of justice. Is that the point of the text? The answer is no. It isn't the point. That isn't our burden. The point of the text and difficulty and tragedy is twofold. Number one, the toxic presence of sin brings death and tragedy to all. That's reality since the fall. It's like a, an atomic bomb that went off in the ocean and sent a tsunami in every direction, destroying everything in its path. That's true. The toxic presence of sin in the world brings death and tragedy to everyone. Everyone dies. But not everyone perishes. How do I not perish? How does such an event speak to me about, you know, life is short. I could die tomorrow. I get hit by a car on a jog and be dead. Somebody could break in my home tonight. I could just randomly, like, be walking in a tree branch, snap and crack me over the head and kill me. Life is that short. It is that tenuous. That's what those events say to me. I, Adam, me, I need to look at them and repent of present condition and find the promise that's held out to me in said repentance, grace and forgiveness. These are our last final thoughts, I promise. Look at the passage because this, par- this is the parable that concludes it. I'll just read the verses. 
let me just say this word about the parable. You won't always have time to repent. That's the urgency of natural calamity and tragedy. You cannot keep saying to yourself, I'll do it tomorrow. Look at what the parable says. I read it and we're done. Verse 6. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. Think you are fig tree. And he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now, I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the oxygen? Or as a tree, why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, let it alone. I know they have disobeyed your word. I know they have blocked you out. I know they have ignored you. I know they always think that there's going to be another tomorrow. I know you've come looking for the fruit of your word in the presence of their lives for three years now. I know. I know that they're not listening. I, I, I know. I know they're worthy to be cut down today. I know they're worthy to have tragedy take their lives this hour and that they may perish. I know. And he said to him, Sir, but let it alone this year also. Give them one more season. Let me, as I cultivate it, as I speak the word of God to them, as I try to reach out to them, let me, let me dig up around it. Do some extra effort. I'll, I'll, I'll tend to the tree who doesn't want to be tended, a tree who doesn't have fruit of reception. I'll dig it up. I'll do extra work. I'll dig around it. I'll even put in manure, additive. I'll work harder. I'll season it just so. Give it one more year. I've come three years and I find absolutely nothing. Cut them down. Give them one more year. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. The opportunity for repentance doesn't last forever. You're not guaranteed another Lord's day. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you will help us.